The following interview took place at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. The Anatomy of a Miracle, a conversation with Dr. Anthony Rossi and Rabbi Ellie Estrin. Welcome, welcome. My name is Ellie Estrin. I gave a little earlier talk on chaplaincy in the military, chaplaincy in the hospital, and how the two of them could try to find some kind of uh, comfortable medium. And I did that around the, my own story of my youngest son, who has what we call complex congenital heart disease. And uh, our guest, Dr. Rossi, is going to talk a little bit more about it at some point. But right now, before we get into any of the story or any of the conversation whatsoever, first thing, I just want everybody to know that you are in the presence of not just a man who is extremely learned, a man who is at the top of his field, but a man who knows what it is to be a mensch. And... Because he worked at Mount Sinai for many years, he knows what a mensch is, and he knows what kind of, uh, you know, that it doesn't get applied to everybody equally. So for that, just before we introduce Dr. Rossi, the chief of pediatric cardiology over here at Nicholas Children's Hospital, I just want to everybody to thank him for spending his time from his incredibly busy schedule to come here today and just introduce him as a mensch who is a doctor. Well, you know, first, I'm absolutely honored to be here. Uh, this, this is uh, a, a, truly a highlight of my career. I've never actually had the opportunity to participate in anything like this, even though I've spoken nationally and internationally, but usually those are, here's a topic, prepare some slides, read off your slides, and then move on. And so um, to be able to have a conversation about what we do, I think, is actually very exciting for me. A little anxiety producing, um, but, uh, but but thank you for considering me a mensch. But I, I do have a, a mensch story to start with. So when I was a medical student and I was at Bellevue, and I worked as hard as I could. There's something called a sub internship, where you are not quite a doctor, but you're given the responsibility of a doctor because in a few months you will be a doctor. And I was doing my sub internship and I tried my hardest and I was up all night, all night. And then the person who was the chief resident, so the, the highest of all of the residents of all of the people in the training, came to me right near the end and he said, you know what, you're a mensch. And then he walked away. <laughs> However, despite the fact that I was born and raised in New York City, I had no idea what a mensch was. And I will tell you, and this is absolutely true, for about two decades, I thought, oh my God, that guy hated me. <laughs> I had no idea that what he was saying was like I was doing a good job and I was a good guy. And, and that is absolutely true. And so here we are 40 years later. And uh, thank you for that great compliment. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Dr. Rossi, now, if you don't mind, uh, name, date of birth, and social security. Excuse me. Sorry. Please tell, tell us about yourself and your family. Sure. I was, uh, I was born and raised in New York City in Brooklyn, actually. Um, and, and in if people know Brooklyn, a small part of Brooklyn called Canarsie. Um, you know, I grew up in a 
neighborhood that was probably a mix of Italian-American and Jewish-American, you know, Jewish-American of all kinds of backgrounds, Syrian Jews, all kinds of Jews. Um, and uh, I, I, I grew up in one of the best places you can ever live because one block from my house, I had not one bagel store, but two bagel stores. And one specialized in Bialis and the other one specialized in bagels. And I will tell you that we ate bagels every week, um, hot right out of the oven. And those were the best. Um, you know, I ended up, I, I started my career thinking I would be a pediatrician, like just take care of kids and that would be nice. Um, and then one day I walked into a clinic in my training and they had all these children with congenital heart disease. And the thing about congenital heart disease is there's such great variation. I mean, it's like the hearts are snowflakes. No two are exactly the same, but every one of them needs to be approached individually. And, and the challenge is figuring out what's the best thing for that particular child at this particular time in his life with that particular um, heart problem. And from then on, I was hooked. Um, and I, I got my first job as a pediatric cardiologist at Mount Sinai in New York. I spent about a decade there. Um, it was some of the best time of my life. Um, and, and then, you know, in pediatric cardiology, that sounds like, wow, that's a specialty, you know, that we get even more subspecialized. And then I spent my entire career now over 30 years in the cardiac ICU, where you have the sickest of the patients. And so, you know, basically my entire life has been in a cardiac ICU, patients where every decision is almost life and death, um, and all you do is strive every day to do the best that you can and give the best care that you can and hope, you know, the, in, in the cardiac ICU, it's get another day and see what happens. Get another day and see. And if I can get another day, I have hope, you know, and, and you really strive for that because sometimes you can't, the hospitalizations can be months long. And, you know, at the beginning of that journey, you're never sure how it's going to end up. But you go for another day. Oh, I'm going to get another day out of this. I'm going to get another day out of this. And then one day turns into two, turns into a week, and you get a month, and you can, then you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But it's a really long journal, uh, journey. And, and, and the other thing I'll say, you know, just like Nessie, um, it doesn't usually end with that one first hospitalization. Um, and, and that's where you learn about resiliency. Because in doing this, started in cardiology in 1986, so I'm really kind of old. <laughs> so I started in 1986. I've never heard one child complain about their heart problem, ever. I've never heard them complain, oh, why do I have this? What's wrong with me? Why? They, they don't. They adapt and they fight. And uh, in, in our hospital, we call them warriors because um, I've never seen a group of people who were stronger, um, who were more resilient, and who fought harder than these children with congenital heart disease, every single one of them. And it's miraculous. And I don't know why they have it in them, but they do. And they Something don't really up. funny, because you mentioned that. And my son's name is Nissi, which means, of course, in Hebrew, my miracle. His full name is Nisanel, which means God gives, because when he was originally born, the expectation, as we'll talk about at some point, was about six hours or so, maybe 12 hours at the max. And so we wanted to give him a name that represented the feelings that we wanted to have. But his nickname became Nissi because, you know, that's kind of the life he lives. So he had a cardiac arrest at, at uh, 29 days old, and he has cerebral palsy as a result of it. So he has not been able to walk, but just a few weeks ago he had 
uh, surgery on his legs to be able to allow him uh, the ability, the extension that, that his legs need to be able to begin the process of learning how to walk. So we're taking him in the grit chair. I don't know if you saw it. It's, it's like a little uh, bike slash wheelchair kind of thing that we have. We're walking. The neighbor sees us, and he's got two bright blue casts on. He's six and a half now. And uh, the neighbor says to him, Shlema, which, of course, in Hebrew means a speedy recovery. And he looks at him, kind of gives him like, a, like a, an annoyed look. And I says, Nisi, say thank you. He goes, I'm not sick. And it's just this attitude, like, what are you talking about? You know, just, I, I'm, I'm, you know, no, this is, this is the life I have, and this is what it is, and, and it's, really, it's really something special. Um, so, I, I, obviously, it's, it's something that seems to be common with a lot of these fighter kids, that they have that. Uh, does that move you? Does that, does that drive you? So, so there's, there's absolutely no, I mean, it is impossible as a human being to watch someone fight for their lives and not to say, I'm going to do everything I can, everything in my power. It's going to consume me because that child is dependent on me and he's expecting that I am going to be at my best. And, and so, yeah, every day you, you come prepared and you try to be at your best every, because there's a life there. And, and, and you know, that's the most precious thing that we have. And I, I think if you're a physician, you truly understand that and how fragile life can be. And so you fight and you fight for kids because they're fighting for themselves. So you have a, this is a big uh, cardiac ICU unit. How many kids do you have? Our, our bed, our unit has 34 beds. Um, at, at Nicholas Children's Hospital, we perform about 300 heart surgeries a year, um, something, something like that, 300 heart surgeries. And that's not including the, you know, 300 plus cardiac catheterizations. And, you know, for us as cardiologists, like the heart surgery is big, catheterizations are not so, as a parent and as a child, cardiac catheterizations are a big deal. Um, and, and bad things can happen in all of these things. Um, and so you never take any of what we do for granted. Um, uh, but it doesn't end. And, and for those who are not familiar with congenital heart disease um, and think, oh, that's something that's really, really rare, congenital heart disease occurs about one in 100 births. So it is not rare. So you, and we, we actually started talking with this, there was a cardiologist, I don't see him at the moment, um, an adult cardiologist who was asking me before, in the previous session, we were talking about statistics. So I kind of, in my style, I kind of knocked st statistics as being uh, irrelevant to the case at hand. And we got into a little bit of a conversation with that. When you have this kind of flow of patients in and out, how do you drive that balance with this particular kid? And how do you teach your staff to, ta to have that? Well, uh, yeah. So, you know, statistics in what we do, are it's incredibly important because, you know, the basis of, of much of medicine is what we call clinical decision making. You know, there's, you, uh, there's a right decision and a wrong decision. Um, but, but it's subtle. So it's, it's not black and white. In other words, you know, there could be two treatments. And in one treatment, you know, 45% of the patients get better. And in the other treatment, maybe 55% get better. You might not actually realize the difference until you start measuring it. And that's where statistics become really, really important. But what's only important for that particular child is what you do at that particular time and how they react to it. 
Um, but you use those statistics to make the best decision. And, and, and really, clinical decision-making in medicine is, is really a math equation. I, I have this data, I have this data, this is what I should be doing right now. Being aware that, you know, decisions aren't black and white, and the best decision can, for this particular patient at this particular time might be the wrong one. So be prepared to, you know, take your ego and put it to the side and say, mathematically, statistically, this was the right thing to do, but right now for this child, I'm gonna have to do something else. And I'm gonna have to say, you know, what I thought was right was wrong um, and, and take another path. So what's, what's your governing philosophy, so to speak, of medicine and, and how do you teach people that philosophy? Um, so I, I think, you know, uh, medicine's a profession. It's a job um, for the people who are truly good at it. And I think, you know, I, I would just say I aspire to be really good at it, um, but you can never get there. Um, it, it, it all starts with empathy. You know, the ability to put yourself in the place of a family or a patient and say, what, what would I want? What would I want for my family? What would I want for my child? How would I want to approach this? Um, and how would I want my doctor to be who's taking care of me right now? I would want them to be as smart as they could be, as prepared as they could be, um, as learned as they could be. Um, and, and, and so that when they started on this journey together, you know, in, in healthcare, it's like I, I wanted him, to, my physician, to feel like this was the most important thing. And I think, I think a lot of us who do this, um, you know, at some point, it really becomes my profession and everything else in my life. And it's like, that's a, that's a hard trade-off sometimes, but it, when you're doing it, it's not hard, because it's very clear to you that's like, wait a second, you know, I have everything. I'm totally blessed. I, I have my health, I have a family, and at the end of the day, my worst day in the hospital, I'm gonna go home. I might go home the next morning, I might go home late that night, I'm going home to my family and I'm gonna be fine. But that patient, on his best day, is gonna be in the hospital with his family there, all worrying about what next is gonna happen. And so, you know, I, it's like, for me, it's like, I've been so blessed. Uh, what else can I do but give back to show that I'm appreciative for everything that I have? Phenomenal. <laughs> so, this brings up a little bit of a side conversation. You know, as a chaplain, obviously, one of the things that we do is we're trying to bring people to a different place. You know, trying to bring them out of the mundane, so to speak. And oftentimes you hear people struggle, and at least people who are in the, the more concrete professions, if you want to put it that way, who struggle with the concept of false hopes. There's hope and there's false hope. And there's a, a very delicate balance between the two of them. And how do you, how do you meander through that? Yeah, that's a, a, it's a good one. Because, uh, you know, it's really hard. I mean, life is hard um, for all of us. I mean, there's, there's no one you know, that I know that, that, that doesn't have challenges, and the challenges are amazing. Um, but if, if you want to know, you know, what's one of the hardest things you ever have to do, go to a parent and say, I have nothing else. There's nothing else that I can offer. 
Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's so emotional and so visceral, uh, and it hurts so much, personally, to all of us, even, even, you know, if you're not a very sensitive person, to give that kind of information to a family about their child is the hardest thing you can ever be asked to do, and I, I, I absolutely believe that to be true. Um, so the false hope comes when you're not prepared to do that, and you say, but we could do this, and we can offer this, knowing in your heart that it's probably not going to lead to, or it's going to be okay. Give it another night. And, 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 and so in a, you know, in a profession where we're constantly battling between life and death, understanding that there's a point where you probably shouldn't be pushing any further because you don't want to give false hope. Um, you know, there's a concept that, you know, at times we're prolonging life, you put someone on life support. So you know, you know, there are mechanical things that can support your like heart and your lungs. So if your heart and your lungs aren't working, I can put you on a machine and it will support your heart and lungs. And, and so that, that is true hope if there's a chance that your heart and lungs can get better. It is false hope if the likelihood that your heart or your lungs won't get better because then it's just not prolonging life anymore but almost prolonging death and understanding that and being honest and um, honest with yourself. Honest with yourself so you can, you know, face a family and say, you know, there, there's nothing left. Um, we're trying our best. Um, that's hard. Um, and, 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 yeah, that idea of false hope, it, it, it only transiently helps you uh, personally. It never helps the family. So let's, let's go over to, to my personal story over here because this is an interesting conundrum that the neonatologist who dealt with us in their first week of, of care uh, so just a little bit of the background. So my son was diagnosed in utero with pulmonary atresia, total anomalous pulmonary venous return, and single ventricle, um, right ventricle. So he doesn't have a left ventricle. He has half a heart, basically, and he really didn't have a system to be able to, flow, to provide blood flow between the heart and lungs. So before we introduce the neonatologist in the story, your perspective on that situation? Oh, that's, so when, when you talk about babies that are born with congenital heart disease, you know, what, what your child had was lethal. So without care, it's lethal, um, with the likelihood that you wouldn't last more than a couple of weeks um, at best. And sometimes it's hours without appropriate medical management. Um, even with the best care, the likelihood that you get to age six, based on the data and the statistics, is probably 30 to 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent. Um, now, again, for an individual child, you know, if that child makes it, it's 100 percent for him. If he doesn't make it, it's 100 percent the other way. Um, and, and so you, you don't know. Um, and, 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 and so you never want to give false hope. Your child will be fine. Don't worry, we'll do this operation, this operation, this. And I will tell you, there are people in my profession that that's how they want to approach it. Your child would be fine. We have an operation for this, and then another operation, and another operation. And you'll go through all these operations, um, and, and then at the end, you'll be fine. And, and uh, well, that's not right. It makes you feel better. It's, you know, it's like you feel better, the parents feel better, but it's not truth. And, and you know, you, you have to balance, like, you want truth, which is important, um, 
but you also want to you want to give hope. I never want to take away someone's hope, not certainly not prematurely. Um, and so there is a balance between being completely honest and being, you know, and, and, and leaving that window for, but we don't know. You know, they say life is 100% fatal. <laughs> for all of us. <laughs> and, and At be. least until this point. <laughs> um, so the, the story was, of course, that this neonatologist that we wanted to assist us uh, to, to advocate for us to be able to see if we could find some way to be able to get him to surgery. He called Seattle Children's Hospital and told them that we refused care. And he told us that Seattle Children's refused care. So why would you think that somebody would do that? Um, well, I, 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 I couldn't personally understand that. And, and my assumption would be... Because you're a mensch. <laughs> Well, my, my assumption would be that he thought he knew enough about the condition that, you know, any medical treatment would be futile and that, you know, he was going to save you and your family from, you know, all of the suffering that you would go through and, and the child, too, from the suffering. Um, but, you know, so may, maybe, you know, our backgrounds make us who we are. You know, that, that's the, yeah, every, everything that has touched us in the course of our life make us who we are. And I had a great opportunity in my training to be in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So one of the great children's hospitals. Um, but in that hospital was a surgeon who invented a surgery for children with congenital heart disease that up until that time, you know, um, around the world was universally fatal. So every child before he operated on you know, came up with a technique of operating on these trials, 100% of them died forever, and they all died within a, about a month of age, some with a couple of days, but, but usually within the first month of life. Um, and then he came up with this operation. And, uh, you know, when he started doing that, everybody was, no, oh, this can't be true. He can't have, you know, we've all tried this before. And, and, and there were physicians who thought they were doing the right thing and said, you don't want to go to Philadelphia. You don't want to have this operation. That's a whole bunch of nonsense. Um, and the most compassionate thing is we'll put your child in a nice, comfortable place and we'll give him some medicine so he doesn't suffer and he'll pass away peacefully. Um, and, and, and so, you know, for me it was like, yeah, I saw people who didn't believe, who didn't believe what we were capable of, who didn't believe what the children were capable of. Um, and so, you know, there's, if there's a chance, you know, you got to go for it sometimes. Um, you don't want to push people. So there are, there, there, are, there are parents who have children just like Nessie who make the decision, I don't want them to go through that. I don't want them to suffer. And I, I can't judge them. There, there are fetuses where now we can make that diagnosis where the parents say, I don't want to go through with this pregnancy, and I wouldn't push them. But if they're born and, and, and you know, this is what the parents' wishes are, and the child is willing to fight, then you do everything you can. And you know, you know, maybe the odds might be against you, but I'm not gonna stop fighting if the child's not gonna stop fighting and the family's not gonna stop. It, doesn't, it just seems like it would be the wrong thing to do. Um, so, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine lying to a family about, about that. Um, but I'm sure in the neonatologist's mind, he was like, I don't want you to go through that suffering. And the, and the truth is, if you're not at a great congenital heart center, if you haven't trained in a great congenital heart center, 
then you might not have ever seen anybody live with that disease. Like nobody who wasn't in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in the 1980s ever saw someone live with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, and so they didn't believe that it actually could happen. And that neonatologist obviously hadn't seen this and didn't know, but he, but he probably should have left an opening to say, I don't think this is, the, however, if you want to go for it, go for it. So you just, when we were talking about right before um, we started the session, you said clearly that Nissi is a miracle. And I'd like you to expand on that and also to talk a little bit about, as a man of science, where do you see is that, that strange balance between, all right, you know, we, we fixed it. You know, it's the same thing as a carburetor. All right, now it works. You know. I wish. <laughs> I wish it was that. I wish biology was that simple. I wish human biology was was as simple as we make it out to be, or you know, as simple as our current understanding of it. You know, and you, and, and you don't. In what we do, you don't like to throw out, you know, ideas like, "Oh, that's a miracle." Um, but but when you've beaten the odds by so so much, um, you know, then there's almost no way to classify that if if you know, the odds were so stacked, you know, it's a miracle when you win the lottery and you get $200 million, you know, it's like, that's a miracle. Why you, now, why not the guy next to you, the guy who brought the ticket, you know, when you've gone through everything that Nessie has gone through um, and turn out as good as he's turned out and, you know, continue to have that fighting, that's a miracle. You know, you just don't see that um, because the odds at the very beginning were stacked against him. You know, so if you were, you know, if, if we were having this discussion and he was sitting there and he had never had a surgery in his life, you know, we'd probably say, look, we're going to do this operation and then he's going to need this operation and this operation. And in five years, you probably got a, you know, four out of 10 chance that he'll be here. Um, but, but then he suffered, you know, a, a catastrophic injury in his surgery. Um, and the chances of surviving just that are about, two to three out of 10. And yet he survived that. So we started off with, you know, terrible odds. And then he had an injury or, you know, a terrible outcome after surgery that, that required this heart-lung support that he got. And, and the odds are stacked against that. And then he came out and, you know, he was not the same child. Um, but in many ways, you know, he overcame so many of these obstacles and, you know, is he who he might have been if he, um, if he didn't suffer that? No, he, he, you know, um, but he might be better. Like he might be better because, you know, if he wasn't here, none of us would be here in the session. I mean, honestly, none of us would be learning from this. None of us would understand what it's like to fight, you know, harder than you can possibly fight for life. Um, and, and one of the things I remember from Mount Sinai very, very well, um, you know, um, is I used to hear this all the time, where there's life, there's hope. Um, and I truly believe that, that, that to be the case because there were so many times where he shouldn't have made it. There's so many, operate, open heart operation, open heart operation, open heart, I can't even imagine that. And, 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 and yet here he is and he's teaching us. He, he's, we're, he's the reason why we're here, right? He's teaching us today about how to be better human beings. Um, so I had to toss the picture up from earlier on today. That's one of my favorite little pictures. 
but that's what he looks like on a daily basis. And I just want to kind of toss onto that, you know, one of these things that he teaches us. So we have no idea why, but he's gone through these periods where he'll oftentimes have a uh, gag reflex and he'll throw up on himself all night long and basically we'll hear him coughing over the intercom, go into his room and he's covered in vomit at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, stripping him, stripping the, the, uh, the sheets and all that kind of stuff and he'll turn around and say, thanks mom, sorry about that. <laughs> and that's his kind of attitude. Or there's another one that was uh, one of the surgeries that we did here at Nicholas was, it was uh, they put him to G2. He's six and a half, he doesn't eat yet. Eating's overrated. Um, I mean, here, uh, I don't know if you saw the lunch, but they don't believe that here at the national retreat. Um, most Jewish mothers don't think that it's overrated, but <laughs> Italian moms don't think that either. <laughs> um, but in any case, so we did this, this uh, surgery to get a G-tube placed. Until that point, he had an NG tube going into his nose for two and a half years. We did his bris at the same time. He was two and a half years old when we did the bris. So a few days after we had the G-tube put in, I picked him up and the, the tube gets yanked on a, on, a, uh, on a chair. And of course, it pulls out the stomach and he starts crying. And he's not a kid who cries very often at all. And especially a kid that you put all this energy into, when they cry, it really, it hurts. So my wife picks him up. She's holding him close to his chest. And after about 10, 15 seconds, tears still on his face, he picks his head up and goes, happy now. And that was that. And I just thought that's such an incredible lesson that this kid teaches. And that's true with regards to everything else. He can't walk because of the injury, the brain injury as a result of the cerebral, as a result of the cardiac arrest he had at almost one month old. He's teaching himself how to walk, but he doesn't, he doesn't look at himself any different <laughs> In fact, the exact opposite. He just got this big yellow walker that he, he, used, he uses to um, practice walking. And we're in the, in the park, and he's pu pushing it up a, um, a Florida slope. I don't know exactly how to call it other than that. And he's pushing it. He's just, you know, dripping sweat. And he's pushing his way because he wants to go up this hill, if you want to. And suddenly he turns around to me with his gigantic smile, and goes, I'm like a grandpa. <laughs> and just, this is this whole, this whole, just everything, everything, everything is a joke. And it's just this unbelievable thing, because perfectly healthy people can look at life and struggle with the most basic, you know, getting up and, and going to work or getting things done. And here's this six and a half year old who realizes somehow, and I, I don't know how, I, it's not, We've got one kid who's perfectly healthy, and that is the biggest kvetch you've ever heard. Kvetch you learned from, from Mount Sinai as well. <laughs> They're not in the same ward as the Menches. <laughs> um, and so you're absolutely right. When, when somebody goes through an experience somewhere, it, it, it's, it's meant to teach. And that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful lesson and beautiful something to be able to take out. There's a Hebrew term that is the Hebrew term for hospital, Bet Cholim. And Bet Cholim literally means the house or the place of the sick. And the Rebbe, who I'm sure you've heard of, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, had this, this notion which he pushed doctors to change the Hebrew term to Bet Rufua, the house of healing. 
I know it means a lot to me, but I want to hear what, what you have to say about that. What, 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 what's your thought about the nuance between those two terms? The house, house of the sick and the house of the healing. Yeah. I mean, that's who we aspire to be as physicians, as healers. Um, and, you know, I, I think ideally um, that, that's what I would like to be known as, as a healer. Um, uh, and, 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 and that's where you come to get better. I mean, you, know, you go to a hospital, you know, not because you're sick, but because you want to get better. You're sick and you want to get better. Um, so we don't just house sick people. You know, it's a constant attempt to make them not sick, to make them well. Um, so I love looking at it like that. Um, I have to say, there are many times where I believe, you know, that I, I heal nothing. Like, I, I, I heal nothing. Um, I'm human. I have, like, these instruments. I have medicines. I have catheters. I have tools and, you know, all kinds of medical supplies. But that's not the healing. The healing comes from someplace else. We put things together and hope that eventually it'll work. But it works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. And it, it has nothing to do with what we do. We, you know, we give you the tools to get better. And then something allows us to get better. Um, but it's not the medicine, it's not the surgery, it's something else. And, and we just give patients the chance and hope. Um, and, then, and then something else makes the patient better. And, and you're reminded of that all the time because we'll do the same operation over and over and over again. We'll do the same thing over. And, and there will be patients that, that go home and are fine and patients that don't and we don't understand why that's the case. And we blame ourselves, you know, every time. And, it's like, but when exactly the same, what happened? And, and you just have to be reminded, it's like, the, the healing is in what we do. The healing comes from someplace else. Getting, given someone the opportunity to be healed, yes, but we don't do the healing. You remind me of, of another one of my favorite quotes that, that uh, I was on one of the slides and we spoke about it earlier. Talmud says that doctors are given permission by God to heal. And uh, the rabbi would add on to that, and, but not to cause pain by predictions. And so there's, it's an interesting perspective that, that when you understand that your job is, is to heal and you realize that you're, you are just the tool to allow God's healing to, to go through that process. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, um, God heals us. Um, you know, whoever your God is, God heals us. And we are a tool attempt to make that happen. And we're no more than that. I mean, really, you know, I don't, we shouldn't ever put, we're a bunch of human beings who work really, really hard, and some of us really care a lot. Um, but at our best, it's like we put things together, we give you the right medicine, and then whether or not you get better is beyond any human being. Um, and I don't know how it's decided that you get better and you don't, especially, you know, I mean, I'd like to believe, like, the bad people don't do as well as the good people, but that's just not the case, you know. And, you know, when I, when I question God, and, you know, I, I do, um, you know, um, it's why this baby? Why this baby? You know, this baby did nothing. Um, why did he just, and then you have to realize, you know what, it's not that simple. It's just the way that we look at the world, that there's, you know, right and wrong, um, and, and that's why this baby lived, and, and, but, but it's, it's never that simple. And so we're, we're constantly, 
you know, um, reminded that well, we just have some tools and we're good at using those tools. And hopefully if we use the right tools, something will happen that'll make that patient better. So let's take a dive into the concept of, of positivity. What role do you feel that that has in the, in the healing process or in the, uh, just the whole picture? Well, you know, I, one of the things that I've learned in my practice, and again, I have a very specific type of medical practice. You know, every day of my career as an attending doctor, um, I wake up and I walk into a cardiac ICU. The beds are filled with children, babies, children, um, who have life and death conditions. Um, and, and, and what I know is that, and you see this, you know, there are, there's a time where it's clearly apparent that a child, a baby, they've lost the will to live. Um, and, 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 and then you can't overcome that. Like you really, really can't overcome that. You, you have to give, especially people, you know, we're reminded of the children all the time. You know, and that's, that's the entire focus. You grow up, you become a pediatrician, then you become a pediatric cardiologist. It's the child, it's the child, it's the child. And then it's everything around the child. It's the mother and the father and the siblings and the uncles and the, you know, um, and, and they suffer too. And they struggle too. Um, and, and so, you know, you can't, you, you want to give them hope all the time. You know, now you don't want to give them false hope. False hope isn't good for anybody. It, it Maybe transiently, it makes you feel a little bit better. You walk out of the room, it's like, oh God, I didn't have to give bad news that time. But, but you, you, don't, you don't want that. But if you've done this long enough, you've seen kids that everybody has given up on. And then you watch them walk back into the hospital years later, and you realize, oh, we're not really, really good at this predicting stuff. We're pretty good. I could pretty much tell you what the likelihood is, but for the individual child in there. And so you always have to have that. And when you have that, then you can honestly say, you know, things look really bad right now. However, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And if we can accomplish this, we got a chance. And, and you see that over and over and over again. And I, I, I think that, you know, Part of the things, you don't sign up as a pediatrician or a pediatric cardiologist to take care of the adult families. And you realize that is as important as it is taking care of the child. That, that you're no longer just responsible for the baby, you know, and, but everybody else surrounding that baby. So you're really talking about the, the kind of a more holistic energy, but family advocacy as well. No, no question about it. You know, these. You're hard pressed. I'm hard pressed to think of children who have done really, really well who don't have that kind of support. Um, you know, I, I guess it was Hillary Clinton that said it takes a village. Um, you know, it it takes more than a village for these children. Um, and you realize that you have to prop up. You know, I have to get the right medicines, the right surgery, the right procedures. And then I have to give the parents the tools so that as this child continues to grow, go through his journey, you know, that, that they're able to cope with it. In general, we feel like that, that uh, children's hospitals in particular are really good about, about 
providing that space in general. Not, not all of them, but in general, they, they're better about creating that space of a family to be part of the healing process. Yeah, I'm, you know, yeah, it, 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 I'm a bit biased. I'm a pediatrician who's worked in children's hospitals his entire life, you know, so I, but, but there, there's a difference overall, not in individuals, but there's a difference when, when you go into pediatrics, you go understanding that the guy who went into adult medicine doing the same exact thing but on adults will make much more money than you. They get all the support from hospitals because adult medicine brings in more, and you get far, far less. And so when you go into a children's hospital, you, you have to realize there are a bunch of people in that hospital, doctors, nurses, um, who have sacrificed monetarily because they really believe that taking care of children's, taking care of children, you know, uh, is, is one of the greatest things that you can do with your life. And I uh, clearly, you know, if you ask me over and over and over again, I'm blessed to have been able to do what I do and what I continue to do. Um, and, 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 and we do it because it's like we're lucky. Um, and, and, and so when you go into a children's hospital, for the most part, there's a whole bunch of people there who had the opportunity to make a lot more money doing other things, and they just, I want to do this. I want to do. I just had to, you know, we we uh, in children's hospitals, and if you go to, if you want to go to a hospital where you know the care is going to be good, go to a hospital where there are training programs, you know, because those are going to be the best hospitals in general. If you want to just pick, is there a training program? Do you have residencies? Do you have fellowships? We had a medical student today, and he was like deciding. I don't know, I want to do adult cardiology or I want to do pediatric cardiology. I'm not really, really sure. I know I, want, I like the cardiology thing, and I said, look, if you do adult cardiology, you're going to make three times as much money as any pediatric cardiologist. However, you won't have the same joy. And, you know, the <laughs> you walk into a delivery room and there's a baby there, and he's getting ready for the world, and you're the pediatrician, you have the opportunity to experience that. You're blessed. There's nothing better than that. There's no television show or movie that you can see that's more exciting or going to fill your heart more than seeing that baby in front of you. It's like you're blessed that you had this opportunity. And, and, and for all of us that work in children's hospitals, I mean, you know, we're a little different. Um, and I'll say that for all my colleagues who are pediatricians who chose not to take the more money, but because this was just better. There's a deeper sense of... of Responsibility. At the same time, I heard from uh, from other couple other doctors that cardiologists over the years that I've spoken to that they're afraid to go into cardiology because of the they couldn't see babies, they couldn't see children with those kind of struggles. Um, you do it, and you keep moving. You want to talk a little bit about about those those feelings and those that you know. Um... When I started, so again, I've been in cardiology since 1986. Um, you know, it was not uncommon for seven or eight out of 100 children who are having surgery to die. Um, so, you know, if you're in a program, like Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we were doing 900 surgeries a year. So that's a lot of death. Um, and, um, you know, it definitely it affects you every day. You never become immune to the, anyone dying, but certainly not children dying. Um, and and but because of that, 
that pushes you harder. That's what drives you. It's like, I'm not going to go through that. The next kid is not going to do that. And that's exactly what happened to, you know, when they developed, when Dr. Norwood developed this operation for hypoplastic left heart. It's like, they were all dying. We watched them die over and over again. I got to do something. You know, will it be hard at first because you're going to have, you know, you're going to have to try one thing and it won't work and try another thing and it won't work and try another thing? Yeah, and you're going to be the one responsible at the end for not having a success, and you're going to be the one that talks to the family and tells the family. Um, but, but at the end, that drives you to be better. You know, it has to drive you to be better because you don't want to be in that situation anymore. Um, and and I think for all of us, it, it you know, it's like, it, it's so death is such a horrible consequence. Um, that it pushes us every day. It certainly pushes me every day. To, I, 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 you know, I want to stamp out death. I can't do it. Um, we're not capable of that. Um, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you know, that child has the very, very best chance of going home and being healthy. Um, and, that's, and, that's, and, and so it does drive us. So there's a, there's a there, well, let's put it this way. When, we, for, we were having the, our original conversation with the uh, cardiac surgeon at, at Seattle's, Seattle Children's. He made a comment. He said, if you would have come here four years ago, we had a chief who really would not have been willing to take the risks on this particular baby because of the complexity of this particular anatomy. This cardiac anatomy is just the, the risk is just too high and the expectations are too low. He said, but now we have a chief who's willing to let, who's willing to push us, that's willing to go past that. And I know that there are some centers that are more, you know, are willing to push the, the limits. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And, and, and you know, I'm praying that nobody in this, in this room or any, you know, has a child with congenital heart disease and has to make those kind of decisions. Um, but I think this is, this is in, you know, Something that I would say, um, you know, drives decision-making of families probably as much as anything right now. And there are things like U.S. News and World Reports, you know, and, and they rank hospitals, you know. Um, and and, and you, you're affected by it because that drives patients to or away from your hospital. Um, and, and, and they have scoring systems as if this was, you know, some math game or something like Jeopardy or something like that. And then scoring and then scoring you and then scoring you or baseball statistics or something. Who's the leading hitter, you know? And, and what you realize is that much of the score is related to your outcomes. Just a percentage number. What percentage of your patients survive versus the ones next door? And, and when you're driven by things like that, then it's very easy, you know, this is a really, really high risk, and maybe we shouldn't be doing this, and, you know, and, and then it affects how you, you know, your conversations with families about, oh, this is too high risk, you don't want to put your child to it, um, and, you know, it, it affects, you know, whether you recommend that someone goes someplace else. Um, but at the end of the day, if you do a lower risk operation and you have more survivors, you're going to get better rankings and more patients will come and then the hospital will be happy and, you know, you get secondary, you know, benefit from, oh, look, he's driving all these patients into the hospital because he has such a high ranked, you know, program. And, and what I will tell you, and, and there are support groups that understand this, the complexities of this, you know, the ones that are rated number one aren't necessarily where we would send our kids. Um, 
you know, the top ones are all going to be pretty good. But when it gets to, you know, what's one, what's five, there are, you know, he's, he was absolutely right. There are, there are people who, you know, and programs that'll say, that's too high risk for me. Uh, you know, we, we really shouldn't be doing this. And, and they'll give you a great explanation why it would be terrible for your child to actually have gone through that. Um, but it's actually a business decision. You know, if you asked, if you asked almost any pediatric cardiologist on the East Coast, you know, most of the country actually, what's the best congenital heart surgery program um, in the United States? The vast majority of us, without question, would say Boston Children's Hospital. And this is a great example of where those Boston Children's Hospital go to the groups that actually look at the data and send patients and make where Boston Children's Hospital was. And, and at the end of the day, when you look at the rankings, they, they rarely come out number one. Like they don't, because they don't check those boxes that get you the highest ranking. However, the best doctors, best surgeons, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, the same thing. It's like one of the best children's hospitals in the entire world. They never rank very high because they'll operate on kids that the ones next to them won't. Um, and they, and, and, and you know, they do it because it's the right thing to do. Just like operating on babies with hyperplastic left heart syndrome when nobody else did because the outcomes were so bad was the right thing to do because we needed to find you know, an operation that gave hope to these patients, and they did. And it was hard. Um, it was hard. You do hard operations. The outcomes are worse. You go home feeling miserable much more often. There's no one you know, responsible for a child with congenital heart disease who has a bad outcome, and you, they go home at night and feel like they're fine. Um, and, you know, if you look at the, my profession, pediatric cardiology and cardiac surgery, for like, there's a lot of people that drink a lot, you know, a lot. Um, and, you know, that's terrible. But, but the weight that we feel is enormous. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, I, I applaud those places that are willing to do things that other places aren't willing to do because they push aside the, you know, the rankings and the money that goes with that, and the, you know, for I need to do the right thing for this kid at this particular time. And those guys are my heroes. That. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when I, I gave this uh, talk about my, my son's story at some point, and one of the doctors uh, who was listening in said that when she was in medical school 40 years ago, she was told that Medicine is 80% science, 20% art. And the art is the heart of it all. The art is the sensitivity towards the people who are going through it. And I just want to once again thank from the deepest, deepest place in my heart and for all of his, all of his capabilities, but at the end of the day, this is what we see, the very art of medicine. If we have anybody, any questions, feel free to come up and I'll give you the, ma the mic and you can ask Dr. Rossi directly yourselves while we have a few more minutes until we are dictated to vacate. Anybody? I uh, was a head nurse in a pediatric ICU for a number of years. And I just want to tell people that the people with the heart are the people that make it. 
the people that come in every morning, no matter how bad everything looks, and come in and say, maybe we could do something to change this. Those are the people that make a difference. Yeah, and what I would say is, God bless you for what you've done. And for everybody in this room, we need nurses. We need them. They're desperate. They're the most important part of the healthcare system. They're often forgotten. They're thought to be like, oh, it's just a nerd. It's like, that is the heart and soul of what we do. Tell your children to become nurses. <laughs> and the social workers. And I will say that social workers do it for love. They really, True. really do. They have a passion for helping people. Okay. Um, Dr. Rossi, I wonder if you're familiar with the uh, Human Flourishing Program at Harvard, which uh, just came out with a report uh, about less than a month ago that um, patients who uh, utilize religious or spiritual uh, practice are significantly um, more likely to recover than others. They did a whole uh, study. It's been, it was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And this particular program is run by an epidemiologist named Dr. Tyler Vanderweel, the Human Flourishing Program. And uh, basically, his thesis is, and he's, he's been doing all these studies that are being published, New England Journal of Medicine, finding that religious practice and uh, spiritual is a big deficit in American medicine and Western medicine, and that uh, this particular study, which was massive in looking at outcomes, basically uh, recommends a, a, a re-education uh, or education of doctors so that they are sensitive to this and use it. Well, so, you know, this is what I would say. I'm, not, I'm actually not familiar, but I, I, I will tell you that by this time next week, I will be familiar with it because I find, <laughs> I find it fascinating. But it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, it really doesn't surprise me at all because, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, there has to be something that drives you to get through your illness, that drives a family to get through. And, and sometimes it's hope and faith. Um, and, and, and the absence of that, I'm not saying that that alone will get you, but in the absence of that, you know, then you have a real deficit um, that somehow you're going to have to make up. So I, I think the ones that don't have that are, are you know, are, are, are the, the patients and the families, you know, that, that, that are, you know, are, are not as well prepared for everything that's going to happen. You know, I prepare myself every day, you know, they, there's mindfulness, you know, and we're taught to be mindful right now before we start our days and everything like that. You know, and my day starts with a prayer to get me through the day. Like, you know, and, and it helps, you know, and, it, and, and I do believe that it helps the patients that we care for. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.